When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Vicki L. Baker about her newly released book, Managing Your Academic Career, A Guide to Re-Envision Mid-Career. Vicki, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dana. I appreciate being here. Um, we are thrilled to have you back. So we talked to Vicki about her previous book, and she's here to talk to us about her most recent, and we're really excited. So um, before we get too far into it, how about you begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, happy to. So as, as you mentioned, I'm you know very much involved in the academic side of life. I'm a professor of economics and management at Albion College, kicking off year 16. I truly do not even know how that happened, but but here I am. And um, I'm somebody who really focuses a great deal on understanding the faculty experience. In my life, I've been really inspired to try to understand my experiences, try to make sense of them, to think thoughtfully about how could I navigate them differently or better. And so my my background really kind of brings together those areas, right? I have a PhD in higher education. I have an MBA with a focus in management, a second master's degree in management and organization from Penn State, where I also earn my PhD. I recently completed a certificate in human resources from Villanova and then also got certified in human resources through the Society for Human Resource Management. I've been teaching HR for, oh my gosh, uh, almost 20 years because I taught it at SMEAL at Penn State as well as at Albion. And I just had an opportunity with some extra funds to, to invest in my own professional development. Uh, you'll see from my, my work and practice, I really do focus a lot on this notion of faculty development, leadership development, helping people advance in their careers. And so I thought, you know, maybe not a bad time to invest in my own growth and advancement and, and enhancing my skills. So I, I just completed that at Villanova over the summer. So I, you know, consider myself to be a lifelong learner, somebody who certainly has a, a long career in the academy. And that also has afforded me diverse opportunities to step outside of the academy in terms of my consulting work, whether it's with industry, whether it's with other higher ed institutions, really focused around the topics of mentoring, leadership development, faculty development, with a particular expertise around mid-career. You would probably notice in my trajectory that my research agenda has also um paralleled my professional trajectory, right? I first started studying doctoral students then early career faculty and now mid-career faculty. So just feel very grateful to be able to engage in this space and to engage with a diverse uh, group of individuals from across the academy as well as an industry. Hmm. Thank you. So um, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, it's a follow-up actually, and and it was really inspired by our conversation that we were able to have the last time. So thank you for for planting the seed in my head of what's the next step here. So it really is a follow-up to the Charting Your Path to Full book. In that in that book, I really focused on the experiences of women academics, really trying to help them think about how do they advance in their careers. Obviously, the title of the book, you know, helping associate professor women advance, was. The, the foundation of that first book, but I also looked at career advancement more generally for women, whether they were tenured positions, non-tenure track. And in the process of, of writing that book and then having the opportunity to 
do workshops and support learning communities. I mean, there were so many learning communities across the country and even outside of the country. I was able to connect back with my host country, um, host institution in the Netherlands. But a lot of learning and reading communities built around the charting your path to full book. And so then that turned into more opportunities to visit campuses and do webinars because obviously it was hitting right during the pandemic. And so opportunities that opened the door to work with institutions, work with institutional leaders around their advancement policies for women, work individually with women, and then again, come in and be guest speakers for these learning communities that would say, hey, Vicki, we're three chapters in. Can you join us? And then we're almost done with the book. Can you you revisit with us at the end of the semester? And so in the process of doing those webinars, I really started to think about, I need kind of a workbook, right? Something that would semi-mimic what I'm able to do, whether it's individual faculty coaching or whether it's through the webinars or the in-person workshops, or even if it's with the consultation meetings that I have with institutional leaders who are working to evaluate and assess their portfolio of faculty development. So I really tried to take what I was doing in person with faculty and to put it in a format in a book that really was interactive or as interactive as I could make it with a book, right? There's prompting questions and there's comments in there of, okay, now pull out a pen and and in the space provided in the book, respond to these questions or, hey, here's a case analysis, an opening case that is based off of a client that I have worked with. What questions would you ask if this were your client, right? I really wanted to take it to the next level and try to think thoughtfully about how can I turn this book into something that is it as close to what somebody would get if they were working with me in a coaching capacity or via a workshop or webinar. Hmm. And so um, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, one of the central features I find of your writing, I mean, you do you do it at a kind of next level, as you said, in this book, but I, it was a central feature of the previous book, I think as well. I mean, maybe not as pronounced, but um, your capacity, your ability to translate theory to practice, I think is, is a central feature when I read your work um, that, that stands out to me. Um, and as you said, so each chapter opens with a case study um, that addresses a central problem of that chapter. Um, so in addition to you know, framing the theory of each problem, which you do, you then offer specific tools and strategies for readers to employ. So talk to us a bit about why that's so important to you. I mean, you, you did a little bit, but maybe expound a little bit more about, because I, I see it as a through line through all the work that all the writing that I've of these, these two books that you've done, um, that it's, it's, it's not, it's not just a theory book. It really is a theory to practice and translating, you know, here's, here's what the literature is saying, here's what's going on. And then here's what this can mean for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember as a grad student having a very, real desire to not just engage in scholarship for the sake of engaging in scholarship, right? I didn't want to to engage in work that was only read by a, a small population or that didn't translate into practice, right? At the end of the day, I'm genuinely motivated by, I just want to do really good work that benefits and improves the lives of other people. And so that's really what motivates my writing style in these books. It motivates how I organize the books. It's really about, let me let me give you examples of what other people are experiencing in the academy. Again, my trajectory has not been smooth. I've just benefited from having that interdisciplinary background in higher ed, understanding the academy, right? But then also the management background, the leadership background, the HR background, where I'm able to pull those areas together to hopefully help move the needle in the academy in general of what are the questions we should be asking? How can we um, better equip individuals to be successful in advancing in their careers? How can we better equip institutional leaders? I have yet to meet any institutional leader who isn't genuinely invested in helping see their faculty succeed. They just might lack the understanding or the resources or tools to do it. So in this most recent book, it's split into two parts where the first several chapters are really still focused on the individual faculty perspective, right? As you said, each chapter is kicked off with a little vignette or a case study that comes from my workshop experiences or my individual coaching clients. And then from there, it highlights a particular problem that is very salient at the mid-career stage. So those first four chapters are really still focused at the individual faculty level, which is, you know, um, a 
a continuation from the focus of the Charting Your Path to Full book. However, in my recent work based off of the Charting Your Path book, that's when I really started to have more interactions with deans, associate provosts, provosts, other individuals really tasked with faculty development roles and responsibilities. And so I felt like I needed to provide a voice to their needs and to the associated problems and challenges that they're facing. So the second half of the book is really situated at department chairs as well as institutional leaders, again, grounded in a problem that's very salient at mid-career, but but problems that a department chair might face. Right now you are tasked with helping others manage their careers, but that doesn't mean you no longer need support. And the skills and competencies that you need as a department chair are quite different. So I really am genuinely motivated by, I just want to do good work and I want that good work to benefit other people. And I adopted that approach really early into my faculty journey, dating back to being a PhD student. I wanted to be able to do work that that was meaningful, that was accessible, and that could have visible um, outcomes based off of what you know I was proposing. Hmm. So, why is the mid-career stage um, important to mid-career faculty? It's such a it's such a long stage, and there's so much that happens in both work and life at the mid-career stage. And the reality is, and this is salient across the academy. There's not as much support, resources, or infrastructure that support mid-career faculty as they transition. I have seen across the academy, we do a pretty good job at early career, and we're seeing much more happen at mid-career, right? That that focus on the mid-career stage is becoming much more present in research and practice and a recognition that we need to do a better job there. But I just think the the implications are so high, right? At mid-career, you do start having people step in as department chairs, and that is a vital important role on an institution's campus, right? You have responsibility for supporting the faculty in your department. You're advocating on behalf of your department to institutional leaders. That's a pathway to other leadership opportunities on campus. And if we're ill-equipping individuals at mid-career, we're not creating, you know, something I refer to in the book is that bench strength. We're not setting people up to be successful to step into those leadership roles and leadership, not just by title, right? In my workshops, I will often say a title does not a leader make. So you might have the title of dean, but by no means are you considered a leader because your behaviors and values are the opposite of that. But really thinking thoughtfully about how do we foster a pipeline of mid-career leaders, leaders in teaching, leaders in scholarship, leaders in service, leaders in community engagement, leaders who might want to uh, you know, step into those formal administrative roles as a chair, as a dean, as an associate dean, as a provost. So there's a lot at stake really at mid-career that both impacts professional endeavors at the individual, departmental, and institutional levels, as well as personally. I mean, there I have colleagues who are both managing child care and elder care responsibilities. It's just there's a lot on the line at mid-career for individuals personally and professionally. And I think, you know, in the academy, we've just not done a great job at recognizing the potential that can happen at mid-career and investing in it appropriately. Mm. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Is you know, I think about the academy in terms of like I, when you said that, I thought, and 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 I feel that I'm I'm in that 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 sandwich generation, as as it's you know anecdotally called, of when you have young children and then also elderly parents um, or elderly family members that you're caring for, and you know we do such a great job in the academy of producing the knowledge and the information, but then I don't always know that we do the best of like supporting our own folks in those stages and those processes, right? Um, so it's it's um, important to note that. Um, so chapter two focuses on, and you alluded to some of this, so we're going to circle back to a lot of the different pieces that you know came out. But um, in chapter two, you, t- you talk about the limited dedicated resources and developmental programming um, aimed at mid-career. And in this discussion, you cited um, the mixed method study that you and your colleagues did of a consortium of 13 liberal arts colleges about the faculty experience. It involved faculty, administrators, and campus leaders. And as a part of that research, you learned that administrators and campus leaders espouse the value of offering targeted programming to mid-career. But you write, quote, one of the most compelling yet discouraging findings of this study was that despite this shared agreement about the significance of investing in targeted mid-career programming, there was limited to know programming that met these needs or priorities. So can you talk to us a bit about that? Why is that? 
Yeah. You know, that's a really great question. And if I had the answer, maybe I would be um, doing some other things outside of just focusing on the academy. Um, You know, again, it's not for a lack of understanding. It's not for a lack of appreciation that there is a need. And I have, again, not found many, if any, administrators who don't have an interest in making that investment. I really think it comes down to not being sure what to do. And sometimes people get frozen in the, I'm not sure what to do, and they opt to do nothing, right? Which is a problem. I have also seen a shift as a result of the pandemic. People's values have changed, right? In relation to life, work, wellness, and well-being. And I think we need to re-envision, you know, aligned with this book, of how we really think about mid-career and to treat it much more holistically. I just think people don't know what to do. And instead of trying to take incremental steps to change that, it's just easier to opt out for whatever reason. And that's, you know, unfortunate. So I was really hoping with this book that I could give, you know, individual faculty, department chairs and institutional leaders and faculty developers, they're all of those voices are represented in the book. Here's some things to consider, right? Here's ways to assess your portfolio because I have seen significant investments across the academy in faculty development portfolios. And there's a frustration among faculty, right? I'm not, this is a waste of my time. I'm not going. Administrators are very frustrated because people aren't showing up despite the resources being invested. But I say, you know, maybe they're just not the right investment. So I really was hoping through this book that I could provide some of those critical prompts or what are some of those initial first steps to create enough momentum to get you moving in the right direction. It's not going to be corrected overnight. We don't have unlimited time and resources, right? But if we can start to get a handle of where we are and where we want to be and meaning where we are now living through a pandemic, because what faculty development needs are now looked very different three years ago. And I'm finding that over the last year, I've worked with many campuses. And a lot of what I hear from the academic leaders is, you know, we have really burnout faculty, Vicki. And we need to recognize the burnout and acknowledge the importance and reality of that burnout. And we also need to help propel them moving forward to recalibrate so that we can be moving in a productive manner. And so I've been spending a lot of time with institutions this last 12 months trying to work towards that. But we're, we're seeing new models of faculty development and leadership development that need to account for the realities of what have has occurred because of this pandemic. Hmm. Yes, and I'm seeing more books on, and I'm hoping to have some folks on the um, channel. Um, I'm talking with some authors now about their their books that are coming out on faculty burnout and understanding that. Um, so it, it is a real need, and people are starting to really write about that um, in earnest. So um, agreed. Um, one of the through lines that continues to strike me about your work and your writing is the way that you take quote unquote problems and you flip the script and frame them as opportunities. Um, so you talk about the lack of dedicated resources and programming as we're talking about, um, as an opportunity to take control of your own career progression. Um, would you talk more about that and then maybe kind of unpack a bit of the, the post, um, hawk year in review exercise that, um, you cite that helps, um, that might help folks get jump started in that process. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, inspired by my own experiences in the academy recently of just trying to think about, well, what are my values? What are my priorities? What's going really well? What hasn't gone well? And to try to show myself some grace, to try to create some boundaries. So that post hoc year in review, you know, and as I describe it in the book and as I do in person, it's kind of like, you know, your movie reel highlights. If you were going to see a movie trailer, what would be the highlights? Or if you were going to be featured on 60 Minutes, the year in review, and I I remind folks that that year in review highlights the successes or the triumphs of the year, but also highlights the, you know, the human pieces of devastation of loss. And so it's just a really good idea to get a handle on where you are currently in order to get to where you want to go. So that post hoc year in review is someone creating that highlight reel, that movie trailer that both highlights what happened and occurred that was really successful or that someone felt like they made the greatest impact or that they felt like there was a really strong value add 
as a result of their engagement? You know, if you were to high, you know, write out the highlights of the year, what would they be? And I also encourage individuals to don't discount the personal, right? That needs to be included. It cannot just be about professional. But then also what happened that was not a highlight for you, right? That is a, a good gut check for us or a, or a wake-up call. And I then ask them to look at what they have in each of those areas. And do we start noticing any trends? You know, on the side of the positive, do we see certain contexts that we're engaging in or in certain collaborations or with certain people or in certain settings? What are we seeing that we might be able to identify as trends that can help us think more strategically and intentionally about the future types of engagements we want to be engaged in more often. Then if we look at the negative side of the house or the highlights that we would say, yeah, they're highlights, but they're not ones that are really noteworthy or that I'm particularly proud of, you know, do we see some commonalities there? Again, maybe it was a a high incidence of invisible labor, particularly for our women faculty and and faculty of color and women faculty of color. Are we seeing um, just an overabundance of, of overwork, overstress, a lack of wellness? Again, what trends, patterns, themes do we see emerging from that side? And, and are there ways in which we can engage as individuals to take some agency over that, right? I help them think about, are there things that we're noticing on this list that we can come up with a strategy to sunset. Maybe you don't need to be involved in that anymore. Maybe that's not a priority for you. Maybe it was a year ago, but now it's not. So if it's something that you can eliminate from your to-do list, great. Let's think about a strategy of how to do that thoughtfully and professionally. Maybe you can't eliminate it right now, but it's it's on the chopping block for six months. So let's think of, of a strategic, appropriate sunsetting strategy so that you can gracefully exit from that without leaving others in the lurch. So it really is about getting a handle on where you are individually, both personally and professionally. What would you list in that highlight reel or that 60-minute special of a year in review or the Time Magazine featured year in review that's about you? And let's highlight what's going really well and come up with strategies to help situate you to be engaged in those spaces more. And the places there are consistencies or trends on the negative side, let's come up with strategies to figure out how do we start eliminating those from our our repertoire of what we're engaged in. Hmm. And one of the reasons I like this this exercise and just even, you know, this this um, discussion in this chapter is because you do, you know, you are citing this idea that even though there might be a lack of institutional or structural um, support in this area, um, and this is what your this is the gap your book fills, right? Is that you, you, there are still things you can do, and you can take ownership um, yourself, and and then you know using this book and the exercises in it to do that. And this was one of them that I thought was a a really uh, wonderful kind of reflective um, exercise that honestly could be used in a lot of your writing. And it's it's written the last book in this one too for mid career, but I think there's just broader um, broader applicability. You could do this at any time, I think, in your life or career. Um, so you write about the barriers mid-career faculty face as they consider advancement. Um, what are some of those barriers and how can faculty overcome them? Absolutely. And, you know, again, they're evolving based off of our realities in the academy the past, you know, two years. Barriers, there's there's the inherent institutional barriers, right? There's systemic racism, systemic biases in the system that, you know, the academy is working on. There's some people who are doing really great work in the space. And as I mentioned a lot to, you know, people that I coach and workshop attendees, it's not a perfect system. There are absolute obstacles and barriers that are built into the infrastructures. They are there. And to pretend that they are not is just doing a disservice to others' intelligence. And while we're trying to move the needle on improving and eliminating or minimizing those systemic barriers, we also cannot opt out, right? So I appreciate your recognition that, yes, there's problems, yes, there's barriers. And while we're trying to work through those barriers and those of us in the academy who are in positions to advance change are working really diligently to change those systems. And at the same time, 
here are some strategies and tools and tips to try to navigate the current system while also trying to be a change maker of that system as well, right? Like, again, I just don't want people to opt out of, it's a it's an inherently biased system and I'm just gonna opt out right now. And that is a reason why some folks opt out and I respect that, right? There are a variety of reasons why people might opt out. I've had many conversations with individuals at mid-career who say, you know, Vicki, I, I suffered a lot to get to this point and a lot of sacrifices were made and I just don't know if I'm capable or willing to continue putting in those sacrifices to advance to full professorship. I've had women tell me my marriage took a real hit and I don't know if it will withstand another five to seven years of the grind in order to get to full professorship. And others who are non-tenure track faculty, that's an area that that needs more work and is, is probably next on my horizon. But we have a large contingent of non-tenure track faculty in the academy as a whole, right? We're seeing those trends happen right now where there's a, a larger reliance on non-tenure track faculty. And there's also a population of mid-career non-tenure track faculty who require different supports because of their appointment type, as well as the mid-career stage. So really being thoughtful about that intersectionality and then add to that, right? We're seeing a lot more women and faculty of color and women faculty of color in those contingent or non-tenure track faculty positions. So you've got all of these intersecting realities that just require new, thoughtful, innovative, relevant, timely models of how we can better support people. So those are a lot of the barriers that I'm hearing, right? The systemic, institutional level barriers, the individual level and barriers might not be the right word, but the realities of people's existence and what they are or are not willing to to continue to engage in if it requires them to jeopardize their health, their wellness, their well-being, their family time, right? The values. I literally was working with an institution not too long ago who is much like other institutions seeing, you know, the benefits or the the outcomes of that, uh, the great resignation. And they've been an institution, a research institution who kind of, you know, approaches life of, you know, people would be lucky to work here. They would be lucky to be a part of this institution. And yet they were seeing a, a mass exodus of faculty and staff, particularly faculty and staff of color. And I finally said candidly to them, you know, um, your employees are, are communicating their values to you with their feet. And maybe it's a good time for you to start recognizing that, that this isn't a field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And aren't they just lucky to want to be here? They don't see it that way anymore. And they're definitely seeing a disalignment between their individual and personal values with the institutional values you either espouse or the values that are the reality in everyday life. But you should see this as a wake-up call because, again, these individuals are clearly communicating their values to you with their feet. Hmm. Yes. And, and, and you write about this. So one of the things that I do like, um, again, about your work is an, another central feature is the way you address issues of equity, as you're talking about right now, especially as it relates to women, academic mothers and faculty of color, you um, and women faculty of color, you, you highlight that regularly in, in both books. Um, and so in chapter four, where you focus on executing individual career advancement plans. Um, I like that you frame this not just as an individual issue because you highlight the need um, to re-envision the processes and you write, quote, their experiences, meaning this group, um, and resulting career losses will not be countered with short-term fixes. It is time for a reckoning about where work happens, how it is defined, and what is considered a contribution across the academy. Um, So, would you talk more about that? I mean, we're kind of on this idea of, of this isn't just an individual problem. It's not just a, like an individual's problem and it's not just an individual institutional problem. Like this is an issue for the academy as a whole across the field, um, especially like this idea of the reckoning of equity. <laughs> like it's just, it's just like we can't deny it anymore. Um, and so I don't know if you have any more to say about that. I just I wanted to even just just wanted to make sure I brought that quote in because I love that you too often, you know, people make these ish- these systemic issues individual issues. Like if you just do this and this and this. Now, granted, we are individuals navigating institutional cultures and system- systems that that we and we need to navigate. I mean, we are navigating them and we need tools to navigate them. But we, you know, making is in- systemic issues into individual problems only is a problem. And so I like that you do both. Like you're addressing here are the things you can be doing and taking control of your own career and also 
a call to the field as a whole. Like we need to be doing better. Yeah, absolutely. And I really try to be intentional and deliberate about that because I don't want to send a message. Like there are some people, right? Whether you're a, a, a woman faculty, a woman faculty of color or other faculty of color, you could be doing everything right and it still doesn't work for you, right? So I don't want to send the message of if you just work a little harder, right? Just work a little harder, work a little smarter, put in some more time, it will work out for you. That's not true. And I don't want to have to be asking people to work harder. I, you know, there's nothing worse than feeling like you're walking in mud, trudging uphill, right? And that's some people's experiences. So yes, we need to focus on what we can control, right, as individuals. And we can control our narrative and how we communicate that narrative. We can control the steps and strategies that we employ as we try to understand who we are as, as scholars, as teachers, as individuals, right? But that is our responsibility. A, a quote that I often use in my workshops is, it is your responsibility as individual faculty to manage your career advancement. It is also an institution's responsibility, an institutional leader's responsibility to make sure that they are providing you with the resources and the support in order to successfully manage your career, right? I will often say to institutional leaders, great, you expect faculty to be excellent, you know, the traditional teaching, scholarship, and service. And in that book, I work individuals through kind of that visual assessment. I go, but then in your faculty development portfolio, show me where you have supports that help people be excellent teachers. Show me where you're supporting scholarship. Show me where you're supporting service. And I have yet to be at an institution with institutional leaders who don't go through that activity of kind of creating that quick little visual catalog, right? A visual summary of, okay, here's the areas we expect people to be excellent. Now let's look at what we offer on our campus in terms of support, resources, professional development that allow people to meet that expectation. And I do think that is an institutional responsibility. So I got to manage my career, but I also it's a reasonable expectation that my employer would provide the supports in which they expect me to be excellent, right? Like I, it's reasonable if I need to be good in these areas that I can conceivably get support from diverse stakeholders on campus that would help me to achieve that level of excellence that is expected across those areas. And I think the same for staff, right? So if I'm a sta academic staff member and I'm expected to engage in, let's say, operations and personnel development or management or leadership or strategy that I could also look at the faculty and staff development and the resources and professional development available on my campus. Okay, great. I need to do a better job in um, conflict resolution. So here is um, support. And if it's not on my campus, I can get support from my supervisor to attend a workshop of the consortium. But again, I think individually we have responsibilities, but I very much much work intentionally and deliberately to highlight institutions and institutional leaders also have a responsibility. It should not be a simple statement of you just need to try harder and it will work because we have systems in place that just do not allow that to happen. Yes. I, well, and it makes me think about so like, um, like what we do in our classrooms, like, right. Like the idea that like, here's what, here's what we students are supposed to excel at. Well, then you have to map out, like those are your learning outcomes. You have to map out, well, where, where are the scaffolds and how are you helping them get there? So it's the same exact thing. It's like, we do it for our students in the classroom or we, you know, should be doing that for our students in the classroom. Um, but we're not doing it for, our, for, you know, our faculty and staff, um, at that same level. Uh, so again, a classic case of <laughs> we kind of espouse all these things. Things, and we know it, right? But but then at different levels, we just don't do it. Um, so I, I want to circle back to the conversation about and, and dive a little bit more into the conversation about department chair. Um, so you and and you, as you said, you have kind of a whole like section of the book is dedicated to this I, this when you're serving and role in, in the role of department chair. So talk about the importance, and you you alluded to this, and you did talk a little bit about this in the beginning, um, the importance of the department chair role at mid career, and then also, and this might be where you can dive a little bit deeper here, is the challenges and the opportunities when you're in that role. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm now in it myself. I'm co-chair of the department, preparing to take over for the individual who currently occupies the role um, when they retire at the end of the year. And 
we don't typically have that at Albion College, but as a management professor, I saw the importance of, you know, succession management and why wouldn't somebody who's going to be the incoming shadow and help take on some of the responsibilities so that you learn what's happening. I've just seen, and this is again, consistent across the academy, that there is truly limited investment in preparing department chairs. And there's this great line, and I think I cited in the book by uh, Gamelch, where he says, you know, it takes you seven to 14 years to um, advance in your career, right? For you to get tenure, for you to get promotion. And yet we think we can develop a department chair in a weekend workshop. And it's so true of the models that we employ. We're not thinking of the long game. We're not thinking a long-term strategy and appreciating the pivotal role that a department chair plays, right? This is usually the first entry point to a potential leadership opportunity on someone's campus or across the academy. And oftentimes when people are put in this role, I've seen more than not, it's a turnoff, right? They think after I'm done with my rotation, no thanks to any more administrative work because people were so ill-equipped and under-supported and over-tasked that it's just a big turnoff. And we're missing an opportunity to really think strategically about the criticalness of that role for departments, for the students engaged in those departments, but also as a potential pathway for other future leadership opportunities. Also, not to mention that you want to be able to foster a culture in a department where we're modeling appropriate behavior, right? I, as a department chair, want to make sure I'm setting an appropriate expectation and standard for how a department chair is supposed to engage about the importance of supporting faculty, of advocating for faculty, of being able to manage those challenging conversations, to be able to advocate and manage up versus manage down, but also to realize that I'm also basically grooming, right, and socializing the next department chair in our department. So I really feel an immense sense of responsibility to make sure that I am creating a culture that allows for others to observe the appropriate behavior, to delegate appropriately so others start feeling some sense of ownership for the culture of the department, for the responsibilities of the department, for our contributions to the larger institution from a departmental perspective. And that's, you know, me doing that individually. That's not because I'm getting support at my institution or that I've even seen comprehensive models anywhere across the academy. So I'm not being disparaging about my current employer. I'm just speaking about, you know, the realities of the academy. There's just a missed, a major missed opportunity with this position on a campus and thinking the long-term game and also how this position really sets the tone for the culture and for what it means to be a department chair. And, you know, you know, I just don't want the lesson to be, oh, I'm going to, I learned what not to do as a department chair for my previous department chair and that that's your only model. Again, I just love the, the comment about, and yet we think we can develop a department chair in a weekend workshop. That might be a start, but that's not, that's not comprehensive. That's not strategic. That's not thinking long-term. And again, my co-chair position doesn't really exist at Albion. I just saw the benefits of succession management occurring and that this allows me to do some job shadowing and taking some responsibility and leadership for certain responsibilities in my department without being thrown into it without, you know, full support. And so I think we need to be more thoughtful about how that could or should look like in the academy. Hmm. So what are some strategies for new chairs to develop their, um, that they can employ to develop their skills and their knowledge, new chairs especially? I have found, especially, and here's some advice that I've been offering to new chairs, right? So in a lot of the workshops I have, um, I'm going to be the department chair, not by choice, but because I'm up in the rotation, or again, it's a really challenging time in the department. I'm, you know, Department chair saying, I'm weighing the needs and asks of the department of the institution, which are real and valid, with the realities of faculty burnout and already feeling oversubscribed and trying to find the middle ground. And so I think particularly as we're still managing this pandemic and the next kind of iteration of what life in the academy looks like 
based off of the realities of the pandemic and where we're moving. I really think it comes down to let's get back to the basics, right? I think maybe right now we don't need to overcomplicate things. And in fact, I think it's more important for us to try to simplify them. So some of the advice I've been giving to department chairs that I've been coaching is really let's get back to the basics, meaning sit down with your departmental colleagues at the beginning of the academic year and ask, what do we value? What are our priorities, right? And ask them as individuals to, to, to put that down somewhere, whether it's a Google Doc, you're putting it on a whiteboard, but you know, ask individually, what are our values and what are our priorities? I would find it hard to believe that there wouldn't be some level of overlap, whether it's values or priorities. And then I say, as a department chair and as a department, agree on, okay, these are the areas of overlap. So let's agree that these are our values. Maybe we do have a value around inclusion and diversity. Maybe we do have a value around respect. Maybe we do have a value around um, creating a mentoring culture. Whatever those values are, Let's identify them. Let's codify them. Let's agree collaboratively about what those values are. And then the next step is what do those values look like in action? Right? What does it really mean to foster a mentoring culture and how can we all contribute to that? What does it really mean to value diversity and inclusion? And what does that look like in action for us as we engage with each other, as we engage with our students, as we think about the courses and the content and the pedagogies that we employ? But I really think, you know, a lot of institutions, a lot of departments just feel right now that they're kind of directionless, right? Because so much has been upended as a result of the pandemic and just trying to, again, recalibrate and reprioritize. So I really think a critical, important conversation, and that's, you know, department chairs should be having it, but that's also applicable to deans, associate deans, provosts, right? Like, what are our values? What are our priorities? And what do those look like in action? And I would encourage folks, pick no more than three, right? In a given academic year, you want to do something really, really well. And you're not going to be able to do that if you have a list of 20 priorities that you think you can execute on in a given academic year, right? That's just not possible. So I say pick the ones that are most important, the most salient, the ones that you feel you feel you can move the needle on most effectively and focus there. But I think, you know, we just need to get back to the basics and have some of those critical fundamental conversations at the beginning of the year. And that also helps provide department chairs with some you know, some background that if somebody's not living up to those espoused and agreed upon values and priorities and what they look like in action, that does help provide some accountability that was collaborative accountability, right? That's not me telling you, you should value inclusion and your your behavior is not aligned with that. No, I'm holding you accountable for the values and priorities that you sat in the same room with our other colleagues and agreed that this was important and this is what was going to represent us. And now you're falling short on that and I need to find out why and what we need to do differently. But I find that that collaborative approach also provides some accountability measures for the department chair um, to try to be able to, again, ask people to rise to the occasion. Hmm. Well, and along those same lines, you write about, um, you know, you, you, I think there's a whole chapter about how do you still advance your own career when you're serving as department chair? And, and one of the strategies you cite is delegation. So could you talk a little bit about the role of delegation as a department chair chair, and the opportunities that it affords you and others in your department? Absolutely. It's really, again, setting, modeling the behavior, right? I think there's a bad habit that happens more than not. I've seen it at my institution and I've seen it across other institutions, this feeling that, you know, the department chair is responsible for everything, right? They're the ones that need to manage assessment. They're the ones that are responsible for onboarding and socializing new faculty to the department. They're the ones that are responsible for, you know, representing the department at admissions events or sitting at the table with institutional advancement with a donor. And I don't think that's accurate. And I don't think that's sustainable. And that's just not an appropriate department chair model. So it's a, a tough task to figure out what is and is not something that can be delegated. But I think it becomes a matter of kind of identifying what I call those low-hanging fruit, right? Like, so for instance, an example would be at the beginning of the year and maybe that first department chair's meeting, there would be a conversation about, hey, here's the upcoming admissions visit calendar, right? This would be important in a liberal arts college because their admissions visits and faculty are 
asked to come to those admissions visits to represent their departments for, you know, prospective students or admitted students. And again, I don't think it's a reasonable expectation that the department chair would be the only person that attends those meetings, right? And so I think it becomes a matter of, okay, as a department chair, hey, here's the upcoming eight admissions meetings that we know for sure are on the calendar right now. These are the dates and times. Let's think in the department who can attend on behalf, right? So that it's a spread distribution of that work labor. And also the department chair would sign up for one or two of them as well. But I think it's important or, hey, we know every year that these reports are due at the at the institutional level, whether it's the department chair evaluation, whether it's the assessment report, whether it's the year-end report, right? Maybe some individuals, particularly who are newer to the department, might not feel comfortable or equipped to be an effective representative of the department at an admissions event because they haven't been there long enough. So maybe they opt out of that opportunity to help contribute to the department, but instead maybe they can help draft certain sections of, of these different reports, or they can reach out to departmental colleagues and ask them for their summaries they compile the summaries and organize them. So I think it's a matter of kind of sitting down and identifying those common asks that happen every year or those common needs that happen every year. And as a collective, have conversations about who is available to take on what. And then if you start seeing individuals not stepping up, then maybe that's a different conversation of just asking them, hey, I'm going to assign this task to you. But that, again, is about modeling the appropriate behavior of a department chair, setting the standard. And that's what I've been starting to try to do in my department, particularly looking ahead to next year when I am the the full-time chair, not just co-chair. But again, it shouldn't all fall on me. We should all be engaging in the collective responsibilities of a department. And if we can just help individuals identify where those needs are and set those expectations early in the year, then I think it just makes it easier. Again, it's not to say other things won't pop up throughout the year and people may or may not be available, but there are some pretty consistent things that happen throughout an academic year at a given institution with some regularity. Let's start thinking about how how the work that leads into executing those responsibilities could be delegated and or be opportunities for others to show some leadership or take initiative over some of those efforts. Yeah, well, it speaks to that idea we were talking about earlier with, you know, the pipeline or the bench strength. Um, and I, I I find in my own work with students, I use a lot of sports analogies. So I really appreciated the bench strength um, visual of, you know, starting to get folks involved so they can, you know, see a bit of what the process looks like and what's required and just, you know, start to become a part of it. Um, because eventually they may be holding that role as well. Um, I want to take a minute and switch gears and talk about mentoring. So um, mentoring is important. We've talked about it in your last book. You write about it in your last book. You write about it in this book. Um, and I've had you know some of your colleagues on that have done whole episodes on mentoring because it's it's really important at any stage um, of your career. Um, so in the discussion of advancing your own career goals while serving as department chair, you write, quote, mentorship at this stage is crucial and figuring out what type of mentoring you need is paramount to your success. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. What I have found is mentoring models should evolve over somebody's career, right? Like what I needed as a PhD student looked very different than what I needed as an early career faculty member and is very different than what I need now as somebody who is very firmly situated in the mid-career stage. Even though I'm a full professor, I still have, you know, 20 plus career runway left and I have zero interest in dialing it in. And I have also evolved as a teacher, as a scholar, as a mother, right? I've got two kids at, you know, two elementary age children, one who is home with me sick right now, part of a, a dual career couple, and just trying to navigate all of those realities and in the intersections of personal and life. And so we need mentors and advocates who can support us across all of those realities, right? My colleague, Laura Lunsford, and I refer to them a lot as your board of advisors. And I think that's an important shift as you hit mid-career because it really is about thinking, where am I currently at? Where do I want to be? What are my aspirations? Who am I currently engaging with and what kind of support are they providing me? And am I noticing some gaps in that support that becomes now a prime opportunity to try to seek 
relationships with other people to seek support in those areas. But something that I will constantly repeat to the faculty that I work with, whether it's individual consulting clients or in my workshops, is really about, right, you have grown and evolved in your career. Your mentoring network or your board of advisors should also be evolving in relation to your evolution and that we have a responsibility to honor that that evolution by ensuring that we're surrounded by people who can appreciate and support us in all the areas that matter to us. And so that does include personal, that does include professional, that does include a holistic approach about wellness and, and health and well-being, right? I, I wouldn't consider somebody a mentor if they were constantly you know, introducing me to quote unquote opportunities that would be taking me away from my family or, you know, over overextending me in ways that could be detrimental to my health, right? A board of advisors is somebody who is going to provide support, but really appreciates the whole you. And that whole you is really fundamentally important at mid-career. Not that it's not at others, but the whole you, I think, becomes particularly salient, like smacks you in the face salient. Um, and so, Mentoring and the board of advisors should really be focused on that reality, particularly at the mid-career stage. So I, I, I want to switch gears again a little bit because I'm, I'm aware of the time and there's so many different topics that I want to talk about. Um, but I want to make sure we talk about this because the folks who are at mid-career and if you are serving in a chair role, perhaps or perhaps not, but or a dean um, and you're doing faculty development programming and you're trying to make that, improve that, revise that, make that more robust or develop it from scratch, wherever you are. Um, I want to speak to those folks. Um, and you write about, uh, context matters. You write that emphatically in the book that context matters when you're forming faculty development programming. So I, I wanted to give you a chance to be, to be able to unpack that a bit, um, and speak to the folks who are trying to develop that programming. Absolutely. The, you know, I think the first step is, and, and I talked about this a little bit before, but, but assessing your faculty development portfolio. And when I say assessment, you know, in the academy, we think of, you know, student learning outcomes and satisfaction. And certainly satisfaction with your faculty or leadership development programming is important, but that's not all. There's a lot of time and energy and finances that go into faculty development. And so making sure that it is the right investments is really important. So I think sitting down and thinking about, again, what are those areas in which we expect faculty to be excellent? What are those areas in which we expect academic staff to be excellent? And then we you know, put that in a table and then we think about who or what has faculty or academic staff responsibility. Is it human resources? Is it a faculty development committee? Is it the provost office? Is it a unit on campus? Is it the Center for Teaching and Learning? But make sure that you account for all of those key players, whether they're individuals or entities. And literally, it's a check the box, right? We've got the columns that are the headings of the areas that we expect faculty or staff to be excellent. And then on the, you know, for each row, it's going to be the CTL or human resources and literally start checking boxes. But there's got to be an understanding of, again, where we currently are that helps us to get to where we want to be. There's nothing more humbling than that visual summary because I've met with people and they're like, oh, we do a good job across those areas. But then once they go through that activity, there's a realization, okay, maybe we're not as good as we thought we were. And I don't do that to, you know, to embarrass anybody. I go, you need to have a realistic view of where you currently are and where you're putting that money, right? You are investing. I've seen some pretty significant financial investments and for them to feel like they're not seeing a return on that investment is a, not great, right? Nobody wants to feel that way. And the faculty are feeling underserved, yet there's this robust offering of programs. They're just not the right ones. And so I think for anybody who's either starting fresh or feels like they need a refresh, that activity is a really good one to get that visual, quick summary and an accounting of where you are. So then you can figure out, are these the right investments? Do they take into account career stage nuances? Do they take into account disciplinary considerations? That's what I mean by context, right? Do they take into account the institutional mission and values that you espouse to be important? But again, you need to be able to see, and oftentimes we'll see kind of lopsided um, assessments. We've got a lot of support for early career, and then we see mid-career dwindling, and then anyone who's in a late career stage, 10 years or less from retirement, 
not a whole lot dedicated to your career stage at all. So again, as you're doing that visual kind of summary to get a foundation to build from, that also should identify those career stage differences or nuances, the disciplinary um, and, you know, other aspects of like, are we seeing women participating in our programs regularly or, um, you know, women faculty of color or underrepresented faculty populations? Are we seeing supports for non-tenure track faculty? Again, it's not enough just to have them there. Are they the right ones and are they serving the right population? So I think that's, that's where you start. Those are some of the questions that, that, Again, whether you're starting from scratch or you're realizing maybe it's time to do a little overhaul and where do we even start to do that overhaul, this kind of activity will get that ball rolling. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a – so I, and I do assessment work. It's like inventory mapping. And when you see yep. it there, it's 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 a clear, simple snapshot <laughs> of what is or is not there. Exactly. Um, very eye-opening. And it's very powerful. It really is. It really is. Um, so you write about there are two critical considerations necessary to support faculty development efforts, communication and access. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I have seen, unfortunately, some institutions who have extremely robust faculty development portfolios and limited engagement. And there's a disconnect between what they have and their communication of what they have, right? There's nothing worse than we actually do have supports that help people be excellent in these areas or that take into account, you know, career stage nuances. But Individuals either don't know they exist, right? There's no announcement about these programs are coming up or here's the process by which you can register for these programs. And, oh, by the way, if you can't attend, but you might want to benefit from them, here's ways to get follow-up, right? And or we're only offering them at times that are just not accessible, right? Maybe you only offer them in the evenings. That's a problem for some people. What if they, every time you offer a program, it's an 8 a.m. start? Well, what if you're part, you know, have children at home and school drop off isn't until 830. Right. So again, well-intentioned, right. I I will often, and I think I talk about this in the book too, is this notion of disparate treatment versus disparate impact. The disparate treatment is the very overt racist, right. Problematic barriers, but the disparate treatment is we're well-meaning and well-intentioned, but the execution is falling short. So look, we're offering these great faculty development programs and people aren't coming. Well, you offered them at 8 AM and a significant portion of your population has school-age children and drop-off is at 8.30. So it's well-intentioned, but it's resulting in a disparate impact based off of the populations you're seeking to support. Or if we're only having them in the evenings or everything starts at four o'clock, again, thinking of school drop-off and pickup, um, maybe they're only offered on the weekends. Well, maybe a couple weekend things sprinkled in, but you can't expect people to you know, always give up a weekend to be able to come in. Maybe people can't do in person. Maybe they need to be online so that they can multitask and still benefit. Maybe there's shorter little snippets of content that could be recorded as, you know, just little, you know, those little YouTube videos, like a little how-to, here's a quick five-minute video on this really critical topic of where do I find the handbook language that helps me navigate the promotion and tenure process, right? You could, that could be recorded and put in an inventory. So communication is key because very disheartening when you actually do have the supports and people aren't coming, but it's because they don't know about it or they don't know how to engage in that support. And also it's got to be accessible. It cannot be inadvertently, again, the well-meaning, the well-intentioned, but resulting in that disparate impact that the key populations that you're targeting are not able to engage because you just didn't think about the implications of days it's offered or time it's offered or the format in which it's offered. That's got to be diversified. So as we begin to wrap up, um, what, what do you hope readers take away from this book? I hope, again, they feel some energy coming from it. I've had some, you know, folks reach out to me after reading the book and particularly women faculty. And one, you know, really stood out to me of, you know, Vicki, I've been feeling really overwhelmed thinking about this process and my own career advancement. And do I want to advance to full? Do I want to be a department chair? And she said, well, you know, there's still some fuzziness around those things. I don't feel so overwhelmed by it. I feel like I have a starting point. I feel like this is manageable because I've got this guidance. So I hope, again, readers will walk away from this feeling that it is accessible 
accessible, that it is user-friendly, that it is action-packed, that it is grounded in, in our realities of the academy, and that it acknowledges that we as individual faculty members have a responsibility as well as institutional leaders have a responsibility. So I just hope, again, the goal was I just want to do good work and I want that good work to benefit others. And so I hope they walk away from this feeling like, you know, I got something out of this and I feel like it's giving me enough of a spark or enough of a direction that I'm not so overwhelmed and kind of trying to, you know, work through the weeds to make sense of everything. Hmm. It's been great talking with you today. And and final question before we wrap is, can you tell us about what you're working on now or what you hope what you hope your next project is? Absolutely. And again, you're good luck for me. So (laughs) So I want to make sure we ask it. (laughs) I know this is a good question. And hopefully, you know, in another two years, maybe I'll be on here and we'll be talking about the next. I alluded to it a little bit earlier. I'm really keen on doing a deep dive in non-tenure track faculty at mid-career. That is such an underserved and under, um, underserved, undersupported, and really unclear about that population. Again, there's a lot of good work being done on non-tenure track faculty and understanding that experience. A lot of good work now coming out around mid-career. We're not looking at the intersectionality of appointment type and career stage. And so I think there's uh, a lot of potential there. And so that's the area that I'm, I'm planning on moving to next. And I'm starting to dabble in it a little bit. And I'm seeing a lot more non-tenure track faculty come to my mid-career workshops where they say to their provosts or deans, hey, can I come to this workshop too? And I tell them the more the merrier. These will, like you said in the beginning, right? While I target mid-career, this is salient regardless of career stage. And it's also salient regardless of discipline or appointment type. I try to give specific strategies at mid-career, but I, I really think there's a need to just better serve that population of faculty. And so that's that's where I'm going to be headed next. Hmm. Great. Thank you. Vicki, thank you so much for being on the show today and talking with us about your new book, Managing Your Academic Career, A Guide to Re-Envision Mid-Career. Thank you, Dana. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful. Thank you. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.